come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father, here we are, again as always, every Sunday before your word. Uh, we come and we begin by acknowledging your presence and expressing our, our need for you to be among us even as we worship, especially as we worship, to lead us in worship. And we trust that you have been faithful thus far in our time together to do just that. We pray that you would forgive our sins. We trust that you have done that and we know the assurance from uh, your word that sins are forgiven to those who believe in Jesus. And so we sit now in your presence to hear your word and pray that you would, Holy Spirit, take this word that you breathed forth from the writer of Jonah and we pray that we would hear it and know it and believe it. It would bless us. And that through it, the very mercy of God would come. That's our heart's desire in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to this little book in the Old Testament, Minor Prophet Jonah. I want to read the first 16 verses of chapter 1. Jonah in chapter 1, please. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it, have done as it pleased uh, you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and made vows. Now, remember, last Sunday we kind of wanted to, to get a big picture, an overview of, of, of this event that took place in this man's, this man Jonah's life. We, we read the first bit of it so you should know uh, where it's heading. You know, after this, when they threw Jonah into the sea, a great fish was called up by God to come and swallow him. The fish did. Jonah prayed while in the fish and then the fish hurled him out onto dry land. And then he did, once called a second time, go to Nineveh, make the declaration that judgment was coming, that they would be overthrown in 40 days. The people of Nineveh, including the king, repented of their sin with the hope that God would relent. He did. God did relent as they repented of their sin. And then in chapter 4 is the interchange between God and Jonah. Jonah is not at all pleased with the fact that the people in Nineveh had repented and God relented and not destroyed them. And then God then, um, well, chastises, we could say, Jonah for his, for his heart, for his view uh, about that. So that's where it's all headed. And what we said was, since Jonah was a prophet, what's the message? Since Jonah is a prophet, What's the prophetic message? Well, we said to the people of Nineveh, there was a direct prophetic message. In 40 days, uh, you're going to be overthrown in that because of their wickedness. So that was the prophetic message to the people of Nineveh. And of course, that's always a message in the world in which we live. The judgment is coming. And those who do not repent of their sin will be condemned, will be judged, right? And they will perish. That's the truth of the scripture. So in that sense... That message, but we also said that the narrative itself, the the event itself as told, this prophetic narrative is 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 message to us. So we need to to listen to it. And so, just in our kind of an, as an overview, we said, all right, we learn at least that we don't want to be like Jonah. We don't want to run when the word of God comes to us. And secondly, we do want to be like the people from Nineveh when the word of God does come to us, that we will sincerely repent of our sins. So, so that's for sure. But there is something else. This is sort of the bigger picture, the bigger message. And that bigger picture and bigger message is what does this say to us about God? And what we realize it was saying to us about God is that he really is the sovereign one. It's, it's his word that comes to us, his command. He's king. He has the right to rule. He has the right to rule our lives. Even Jonah has the right to command him. And we saw that he was sovereign over the wind. He could call it up whenever he wished. He was sovereign over the sea to make it roar and foam and all of that. He was sovereign over the lots cast by the sailors. He was sovereign over fish to come and say, come and swallow up Jonah and hurl him out in a few days onto the land. He was, so he's sovereign. But what we see here, especially in this prophetic book, this prophetic message, is that God is merciful. And thus we took a glimpse at his sovereign mercy. His sovereign mercy. In fact, that's his name. You remember that when you could get another Old Testament character in your mind, Moses was before God and said to God on one occasion, show me your glory. God said, I'll make my name pass before you. And here it is. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful. So his sovereign grace, his sovereign mercy. 
The good news is that his grace to us, that is his free gift, his unmerited favor, giving to us what we don't deserve, being gracious to us, isn't dependent upon us deserving it at all. It's sovereignly given. We can't do anything to miss the grace of God. And his mercy is the same. When he looks upon us and has compassion, his compassion is, is, is merciful. It could be that we need his mercy, his grace, even for that, always for that, which is our fault. We may have gotten ourselves into this situation, but even that doesn't mean that he can't be gracious, won't be gracious, won't be merciful to us. It's always our fault. The bottom line, and yet he still shows mercy and grace. All of this was Jonah's fault, and yet God was merciful and gracious to him throughout, as we will, as we will see. And so the, the message, really, of Jonah is the sovereign mercy of God, the very glory of God, and, and it's the glory of God, whether we know it or not, whether we're willing to admit it or not is the very thing for which our hearts, our souls long to see. What we really want, what we really need to see, is the glory of God. Because you see, when we see the glory of God, when we know His glory, then we live in the deepest peace Knowing the deepest purpose. What the ancient Hebrews called shalom. The fullness of life. Regardless of the circumstances. To know that God is present with us. And to know that he's favorable to us. To know that we have his very name is that which enables us to live in peace. In fact, you know this, we've said this a million times, with only minor exaggeration, um, that the blessing of God from the priest to the people, the benediction of God from the priest to the people, was God's very name. He said to the priest, so shall they put my name Upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. My name will go with them. That is I'll show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And that name of God, that blessing was this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he make his face shine upon you. Now, when we talk about the face of God, we're talking about the presence of God. Right? As we've said, if, if somebody's going to show you a photo of a friend, they normally don't show you their kneecaps. You normally see their face and you go, oh yeah, I know who that is. So when you see the face of someone, it's, it's, it's who they are, it's their presence. And so the face of God is the presence of God. And so it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And so when his face is shining upon us, that's good, right? Yeah, it isn't dark, it's shining upon us. Face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his very favorable presence upon you. And when the Lord does that, you have peace. It's that glory, that's what we really need. 
in every circumstance, in every situation, to see, to know the glory of God. That he is merciful. That he is gracious to rebellious sinners like me. So that when in whatever circumstance I'm in, to know that he's with me, he's there, he knows it, he ordained it, he has a plan, he has a purpose. I don't have to make things up. I don't have to pretend that all things work for good. I know that because he's promised that and his presence with me. And so since that's what Joan is about, really, and we begin to see it by way of contrast in the, in the very beginning, you see, because Jonah flees that presence. And what I want to do today is take a look and see what happens when Jonah, and thus we, flee that presence, the presence, the presence of the presence of God. We see it very dramatically here. The, the word of God comes to Jonah that you're supposed to go uh, to Nineveh and, and, and be a prophet there, if you will. And, 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 and Jonah doesn't, doesn't really go there. He runs and he goes to Tarshish, which is really in uh, the furthest away he could get in the known world, the furthest away he could get from Nineveh. He was, he was getting on a ship and going as far west as, 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 as anybody could know to go. And so that, that's the sense of it. That's the drama of it. That's what's really taking place here. Now, we know, we mentioned this last Sunday, that, that it's a bit futile, of course, to flee the presence of the Lord. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's God. You really can't flee, if you will, the presence of the Lord. That's what Psalm 139 is about. So we read that, at least part of it, a bit of it, this morning in our, our responsive, uh, responsive reading. <clears throat> this morning, someone once asked me why we do responsive readings of Scripture, not just unison readings of Scripture. And the answer is, I don't know. But we always have. The church has always done it that way. In fact, they did it that way in the Old Testament. That's how people have always worshipped these back and forth kinds of readings. So that's what we do. But that's what we did. And so Psalm 139, right? And, uh, and it's about God knowing us. You've searched me. You know me. When I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. I mean, it's a poetic way of saying, you read my mind. You know what I'm going to say. And then he says, you search on my path, uh, my, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. I mean, you know everything. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Tarshish, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall behold me. And, and uh, you know, the whole thing. He knows us. And the reason he knows us is because he's God. He made us. He knew us in our mother's womb, if you will. Even alive at moments of conception. He knew us even, even then, you see. So he knows everything and all about us. So in that sense, we can't, we can't really flee from him. Now the difference between David, who writes this psalm, and Jonah, is that knowing that God knows where we are all the time, and knows everything about us all the time, was a delight to David. As he writes this song, verse six, 
He says, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. I wonder at it. It's great to know that God knows everything about me. The words I speak even before I speak them. The thoughts I think even before I think them. Now think about that. Are you happy about that? All the time? He said, in verse 14, I praise you. Because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Because you know everything about me. That's my praise. Verse 17. How precious to me are these thoughts of God. Now as I mentioned at our time of confession. I don't think this was true for David at every moment in his life. As it may not be true for every moment in our lives. Because during the time after he had sinned. He really kept it from himself, kept it from everyone. It, it took this very dramatic moment between David and this prophet, uh, Nathan, to confront David with his sin before he admitted it. But, but once he did, and I think this is the preciousness of knowing that God knows and knowing that God is merciful. Once he did and he made confession of our sin, it was the very joy of his life In response to that episode, he writes not only Psalm 51, which we use often as a prayer of confession, but he writes Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, that is when I fled the presence of the Lord. When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. From day and night your hand was heavy upon me and strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Basically, David said, when I refused to admit it, when I refused to live in your presence, when I refused to to acknowledge your presence, when I fled from you, I was about to die. Everything became miserable in my life. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I mean, that's the great news. You see, when Nathan came and finally opened it up, David was able to see it and acknowledge it and confess it. And when he did, he was free, you see. He was free, you see. Jonah didn't know that at this moment. For Jonah, all he could think of was fleeing the presence of the Lord. Now, probably if you had given Jonah a multiple choice test on the omniscience and omnipresence of God, he would have been able to pass it. He would have said, surely God is, knows everything and is everywhere present. And so what he was doing, as some of the older deadest commentators say, he was fleeing the felt presence. Of God, or what we might say, the conscious presence of God. He was thinking, if I could get out of Israel, where God speaks to people by way of prophets, where the temple sits as a reminder that God is among us, where people are talking about God, where there's some sense of people are trying even to, if I can get out of that place and get to another place, 
Maybe there won't be people there to tell me about God. Maybe there won't be people there to confront me about God. Maybe there won't be things there to remind me about God. Maybe God will simply leave me alone and call somebody else and they'll go to Nineveh and I'll be, I'll be fine, you see. And so that's the sense in which he's, 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 he's leaving, if you will, this place, Israel. And then uh, to be out of the very felt uh, presence of God. Now he said, well, why, why, would that, why would Jonah do that? Why would he run from the presence of God? And you say, well, he might have been afraid. I mean, Nineveh was this big place and, and it was a wicked place and he was being called to go and confront and who would want to do that? But the text doesn't say anything about Jonah being afraid. We, we can resonate with that kind of fear, but, but it doesn't say that he was afraid. Maybe it was just too daunting a task. It was a huge task to go and, and to go to this place all by himself, this big city, this wicked city, and a daunting task. And, and perhaps that's what kept him from going. But, but the passage doesn't say anything about that at all and you remember last week when we got to chapter four we realized what the problem was that Jonah's heart about Nineveh and the people there and God's heart about Nineveh and the people there were on opposite ends of the spectrum now we might understand why Jonah might not want to go to Nineveh I mean they were the enemies of Israel surely if they perished wouldn't it be better for Israel if they, if they weren't there, if they had been judged, if they were wiped off the face of the map, then, then, then Israelites could go in and take their, their land, their place, and expand? I mean, wouldn't that be better? I mean, uh, maybe we could understand that way of thinking until we realized, until Jonah realized that he was as needy of the sovereign mercy and grace of God as the Ninevites. And the reason that Jonah knew God wasn't because he deserved to, not because he was righteous in and of himself, but he had been the recipient of the grace of God. And, and when he begins to think of like that, when we begin to think like that, that, that these who are unbelievers aren't any different than we. We both need the sovereign mercy, the sovereign grace of God. How can then we withhold the message of the gospel, at least from from them, from from anyone? You see, uh, Jonah saw himself as, it appears, worthy, and the Ninevites as unworthy. No doubt because he forgot that God chose his people not because they were righteous at all, but because he simply in his sovereign mercy and grace chose them to be his. See, when we forget that, as Christians, when we, when we forget that we're believers and we're forgiven and we're reconciled to God only because of his sovereign grace and mercy, only because he's come to us, only because he's worked in us, not because we deserved it in any way, shape, or form. When we forget that, then we start praying like the Pharisee prayed in the temple. God, I'm so glad I'm not like the rest of them. And God says, who said you're not like the rest of them? And we don't pray like the rest of them, like the tax collectors that have mercy upon me. The sinner. When we, when we forget that, you see, 
We pray that God would forgive us, but exercise justice on everybody else because they really deserve that. When we forget that, we, we see the lives of unbelievers as threats to our lifestyle rather than seeing them like Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd, as those who will perish without the gospel. Same as we. And so you, you see the heart of Jonah isn't always that far from ours. And the correction is to realize the sovereign grace and the sovereign mercy. The sovereign mercy of God. And you see, this, 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 this fleeing was a moral issue with, with Jonah. He clearly understood what he was supposed to do. It wasn't an intellectual thing. It was, it was a moral thing with him. He, he simply didn't love as God has loved. He didn't simply understand his own sin as, as God understood his own sin, Jonah's sin. He didn't understand that he had been a recipient of the sovereign mercy of God as he had been. And that God was simply extending that to another. No more worthy than Jonah himself. He seemed to not realize all of that. And so when the word of God came to him and he, he, he fled the sin of Jonah. Was not simply that he didn't believe in God. At that moment in time when he believed that. He, Jonah, was God. I mean, that's the very essence of sin. We put ourselves in the place of God. And when God brings us his word, we say, no, 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 no. That, that's not wise. That's not how it should be. Now, maybe you don't think about this, and I don't think about this, and maybe we don't really want this to be true, but the truth of the matter is that when we sin, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the place of God. And we're saying, no, if I do it your way, God, that won't bring me pleasure. If I bring, do it your way, God, that won't have a good outcome. If I do it your way, God, that won't be the right thing to do. I mean, every sin boils down to that kind of thing, that we put ourselves in the place of being God. Abraham Kuyper, a statesman, theologian, Previous generation and culture put it like this. He said, our heart is continually inclined to rebel against the Lord, our God. So ready to be rebel that we so we're so gladly uh, were it. But for a single day, we would take from his hands the reins of his supreme rule, imagining that we would manage things far better and direct them far more effectively than God. That's just true, isn't it? That's, just the, that's the nature of sin. That was the nature of sin in the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. And Adam said, well, sure. Now, the, the sad thing is, he was already like God. In the sense that he was made in the image of God. He was simply to reflect who he was. And if he would reflect who he was, he would be reflecting God. Not that he was God, but he was in the image of God. And that got so broken. When he tried on his own to be the God he thought he ought to be. That's sin in us. So, so Jonah's sin leads him to try to get out of the presence of God, out of the felt presence of God into this place called Tarshish. And, there, and, and again, if, if I could just, um, I don't want to be cheesy here, but, but this is the preacher line, okay? Can I give you one of those? Where's our Tarshish, right? I mean, that's, that's a question. That, and it's cheesy in a way. I mean, I admit that. I've been cheesy before. 
But it, it's sort of like what, what every preacher would say at this point. So I'm going to be, oddly enough, like every preacher at this moment, and ask that question. What do we flee from and where are we fleeing? Where do you go? Where do I go? I'm not going to tell you. Where do you go? <laughs> I'll be more general than that. Where, where do you go when you're fleeing, you know, the felt presence of God? What are we fleeing? How do we get away from God? And I know what you'd like to tell me right now, and is what I'd like to tell you is that that never happens, Right? I know you, because I know me, and I know what happens. What are we fleeing from? And I think, not unlike Jonah, we flee from the very place where we think God might speak to us. So there are times when we flee church, right? So now you know, if you miss a Sunday, you know what I think you're doing. I'm just kidding. Not completely. Uh, but but uh, we flee church because we're, we, we know that if we go there, we, we might have to encounter God. Now, what's fascinating to me, and I know this because I did it for years. What's fascinating to me is that, you know, as, 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 as people in law enforcement say, you can hide in plain sight, which means it doesn't mean you stop going to church. But you can actually go and still flee the felt presence of God by not engaging. Right? By not engaging. You simply, simply just let it, we're good at that. I bet there's some of you that know exactly how many blocks are up there. Right? I mean, you can, you can, you cannot, you cannot engage. You can just sort of, you cannot engage. And so you flee the physical presence, perhaps, but maybe not. And for students, you know, they flee the OC or they flee NAVS or crew or STUMO, whatever organization they're in as a campus organization. You simply stop going. Or if you go, you kind of occupy yourself in ways that you won't be confronted uh, with the very presence of God. We flee praying. We flee praying. Because we know that when we actually sit down, quiet before the Lord, whether it's alone or in a group, that, that we're somehow going to have to encounter God. So we find ourselves, I find myself, when I don't want to deal with something, when I don't want to deal with something the way I think God would want me to deal with it, I find myself not sitting and praying. At least not sitting and praying about that. I get my list out to pray about everything else and everybody else and all that, but this is just sort of left off because I don't really want to encounter God at that point in time. And, and you know, when, when we're called to that which we don't want to follow with God, if we're called to honesty, for instance, it's unlikely that we're going to pray to God to help us form a lie. Have you ever done? I don't think many of us have ever done that. We sat down to pray and say, oh God, I need to, I need to lie to this person. Could you help me? You know, I don't think so. Or, or I've got an exam coming up. God, could you, could you help me figure out a way I could cheat on that exam? We're probably not going to pray like that. So, so if we're going to cheat, if we're going to flee from the Lord in the midst of that, we're probably not going to, we're not going to pray about that. Or, Lord, I know I'm married, but I really would like to have an affair. Could you, could you kind of help me find somebody? I trust we don't pray like that. But if our mind is set upon being unfaithful, we'll flee from that. We won't, we won't pray in that, in that sense. We could flee to the fantasy of our own minds. To create a world in our own minds in various ways to flee to from time to time where everything works out exactly the way we want it to. Might be fleet, we might be called by God to reconcile in a relationship or to love an enemy 
And we don't want to do that, so we flee to the fantasy of our mind and we play it out in our minds in such a way that our enemies all get destroyed and the people that we are all supposed to reconcile to come to us and say they were wrong. Right? So we, so we work it out in the fantasy. Or we go places where maybe it's TV, whether it's movies, maybe it's books, where we can, we can live vicariously through the, through the characters of others. We, we could never live like that. We would never live like that. But, but we go there and, and live our lives through them in such a way that there's satisfaction there. But we, we're fleeing the call of God upon our lives to be, to be holy. We could flee to rationalizations. We can say, I know I'm supposed to love my enemies, but really, they don't, that doesn't really matter that much. They don't really care, so I'll just ignore them. I'm, I'm free to, uh, I'm called to help the poor, but, but I can rationalize. No, they're all lazy, so I don't really need to help them. Or, or I, I, I can rationalize in various ways and, and flee the call of God on my own life. And we just simply do that. I'm afraid Tarshish is closer than we could ever imagine. And the, the results are devastating to us. I mean, just as we think through Jonah's own life, uh, in one uh, commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, wrote a commentary on Jonah with an apt title called Man Overboard. <laughs> there you go. Um, but, but, but he lists out some things, and they're helpful to me. And he says, you know, when we're fleeing the presence of the Lord, it makes us misunderstand, miscalculate what we think may be the providence of God. Let me explain it like this. You know, for Jonah, he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. Now, we all, you know, the the Christian euphemism is God, open a door for me. You know, or when someone says, how do you know it was the Lord leading you? So, well, there was an open door. And then if that doesn't work, well, he closed it, but he opened a window. You know, that's kind of how we describe it. And that's fine to describe it that way. We need open doors and windows and so forth and so on. But think about it. If you're Jonah, you're going, okay, I'm trying to get, get away from Nineveh. So I'm going to run the other way. And lo and behold, there's a ship going to Tarshish. Huh, must be the Lord. You know, here's an open door. I mean, I want to go that way. And there's a, surely if, if God wasn't in this, that there wouldn't be a ship. And I just happen to have enough money in order to pay to get on the ship. And so this must be the Lord. This is, this is great. Not necessarily. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, preacher of a different generation, tells a story. He said, he said he knew a friend who, who was quite volatile and had a, had a big temper. And he said it was amazing. Every time he lost his temper, he would find, he would throw something at people. I mean, that's, that's how his temper was manifested. And so, um, Spurgeon puts it like this. He said, what struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something when he was angry. But that whenever he was angry, there was always something at hand to throw. Does this not ring a bell with us? It's often true in the Christian, Christian life. When we have a heart to rebel against God, there will frequently be the providential means put before us to give us the opportunity. But we're on the run from God. When we're on the run from God, his providences are wise tests. They're never gracious excuses. Ferguson writes this. Jonah's era teaches us this. Do not be guided by providences when we're refusing to be guided by God's word. Don't be guided by opportunity, by circumstance, when we're refusing 
to be guided by God's word. Do not take the events of your daily life as your instructor when you've not taken God's word as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. It can happen when we're running from God. Everything that's available to us that will help us run looks like it's from God. And we can misread it, misunderstand it. And then he goes on to say this, that when we're running from God, we find ourselves to be powerless in crisis. Powerless in crisis. It goes something like this, especially in Jonah's life. Here he was in a crisis. It was a huge crisis. This ship is going to blow up because of the storm that's come. And so they come to Jonah and they say to him, Jonah, could, could you please uh, arise and call upon your God? And he has to say, uh, no, I can't. We're not close right now. You know, I'm running from him. And so he's powerless at that point in time. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that situation. Sadly for me, I have. To where I'm not really on the best of terms with the Lord at the moment. And some crisis comes up. And either I have to deal with it for my own life. or, Or someone comes to me who depends upon me. And they say, give me counsel. Give me help. Pray for me. And at that moment in time, I may go through the motions of that, but but I'm I'm thinking, rats, I got some work to do with God before I can really feel confident that I can help you in the midst of this crisis. I know I'm supposed to speak for God, but in fact, John, the apostle, in trying to give us confidence to pray in 1 John in chapter 3, Puts it like this, verse 21. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, John's point there in the previous context is because we know we're forgiven, we can have confidence before God because our hearts won't condemn us. But what if we have no assurance at the moment? Our hearts condemn us. And we go up, I got work to do. Years ago, and I have to use an example years ago because I've been sinned in a long time. Uh, years ago, I remember when I was in graduate school the first time, way back, and um, uh, we were having a departmental party, and uh, someone came to me and said, Bill, could you ask Karen to bring some dessert tonight? And I said, yes. But that was a time in our marriage that wasn't great. Some of we've shared about our seven dark years. Or she has. I was a bit oblivious because I'm a guy. Though I learned about it. But 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 uh, I, my heart condemned me. I, I thought, well, I'll pick something up at the grocery store, you know, and bring it. Either that or I've got to deal with, you know, I've got to say I'm sorry about something. And uh, But that's the sense of it, isn't it? And that's, that's silly, but, but that's the sense of it. Even, even with God. And when we're fleeing from you, see, when I, we're fleeing from God in various ways. And become powerless to help ourselves or others in the midst of in the midst of a crisis. And there's a sense in which Jonah even lost a sense of his own identity in the midst of this. They came to him and they said to him, "They said, um, of what people are you? You know, where do you come from?" Uh, and they began that whole intercourse by saying. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he explained all of that, except he didn't answer one of the questions. He didn't answer the question about his occupation. He didn't say, I'm a prophet of God. How could he? 
There's a sense when we're fleeing from God, we might lose this very essence of who we really are. Not be able to, to really say it. Not be able to own it. And he couldn't own it. And that's the sense of it. I trust you know that. I know that. I've sensed that as well. How can I say? Oh, yeah. Why? Because I'm not really walking with the Lord as, as, I, really, as I really ought. And then, of course, Jonah saw really nothing in his life left. So he essentially said, throw me into the sea. I mean, it got to that point. It got to that point where he couldn't see himself anymore as a prophet. He couldn't see himself any more useful for anything other than throw me into the sea. At least you'll live. And that, and that was it, you see. And, and that's just true. Now, unbeknownst to Jonah at this point in time, God wasn't finished with him. Unbeknownst to us, sometimes we reach a point of desperation. Uh, God isn't finished with us, too. We need to know that. We need to be aware of that. We need to know that there's forgiveness when we repent and all that. And I trust we do and we, and we return. But, but, but that's where I want to leave Jonah today. I want to leave Jonah at that, at that point of despair, really, of vulnerability in him. And I want to turn attention. Because I can't leave you there, really. I don't want to be left there. But to say this, you remember that when Jesus was talking about Jonah, he said this, one greater than Jonah is here. Let me give you some really, really great news. That Jonah was called to go to Nineveh to warn the people of their sin with implied hope that they would repent and God would relent. He didn't go. But when the Father asked Jesus to come and warn us of the judgment that is to come and to come and work in such a way that the Father would be free to relent upon our repentance, he came. And it was a way bigger deal than going to Nineveh. It's a way bigger deal than going to Nineveh. It was a way more dangerous mission than going to Nineveh. He knew when he came that he wasn't simply making an announcement, but when he made that announcement that he was going to have to make good on the provision of it, which meant that if you repent and believe, you'll be reconciled, forgiven of your sins, reconciled to God. And he knew that he was the one who would stand in the gap. He knew that he was the one upon which the evil of the world would come. He knew that he was the one upon which the wrath of God would come so that God could be just and the justifier of all who believe. He knew all that. And he still came. That would be Jonah's hope. That is why God could continue to pursue Jonah because Jesus was to come. And that's why God pursues us. Because Jesus has come. So that's, that's our hope. We can sit here this morning and we can resonate with Jonah. And we say, I understand why he did what he did. I can see myself doing what he did. I do what he did. But there's hope. Because when Jesus came, he didn't flee. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples. He said, I'm not fleeing the cross. This is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. 
And again, after giving thanks to this too, he gave to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the scripture tells us that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. The declaration is that he came. He didn't flee. Even in the garden when when he got it, when it was so clear exactly what was going to happen, and when when he dealt with the fact that he was going to be the recipient of the wrath of God of hell upon him for sinners throughout all generations, and when he got that and he knew that and it hit him and he and he sweat like drops of blood because of the the pressure, that the tension of the suffering that was to come, when he knew all that still, he didn't flee. He said, your will, not mine. Any rational man would flee, but, but your will and not mine. And because he didn't flee, we can sit here in the presence of God. Conscious presence of God. Forgiven. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me for us. That we'd know this, that this would be true for us. That we would know it because because it is true. And so I pray that you would take this truth and sink it deep within us. That you would use this bread and juice to do that. That you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in some way. That we know that we're in the very presence of this one who died and rose again. That, that we know that he's the living guarantee of, of, of our salvation. That we know that because he lives, we know that he, he came and he did the work and you approved it and, and he's raised. And so we come into to his presence consciously by way of this bread and juice right now. So please, God, no matter how far we've run, we pray that you would meet us there in Jesus. Forgive us. Restore us. Assure us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all all those who have fled (laughs) and been found and all those thus who know themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy and all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And all those who know Jesus, who trust in him and desire to live as those found by him as recipients of his sovereign grace, his sovereign mercy. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and say to yourself, I fled, but Jesus didn't. I fled, but Jesus didn't. And that's the good news. Please come.